0: Hello, everyone, and welcome on Women Abroad, the podcast that invites young professional women to share their experience abroad and reveal the wonderful women behind these stories. My name is Françoise Fallis. I'm a certified executive, intercultural and life coach and trainer. I've lived and worked as an expatriate for more than 12 years in Egypt, Morocco and Nigeria twice, and I currently live in Luxembourg. I meet young women who are studying or starting their careers abroad and hear from them about their discoveries, culture shock and the personal and professional challenges they face. What surprises, amuses, even fascinates them. How does their experience open up new perspectives and reveal new things about themselves? If you are curious about living and working internationally, this podcast will inspire you to consider new horizons. Women Abroad be inspired by women who find their true selves living abroad. Today I have the pleasure to host Bettina Skudlarek for my 20th episode. Bettina was born and raised in Poland and she currently lives in Sydney, Australia. She is Associate Professor, Program Director, Master of Management at the University of Sydney Business School specialist in intercultural relationships, inclusion and diversity. She also works as a freelance strategic planning, sustainability and growth consultant for the United Nations Aliens of Civilizations. Being exposed to different cultural environments gives us the opportunity to discover new people and new behaviors. Some we like, some we don't like. And it's really important to go beyond the stereotypes that we can all build The real value of a person goes beyond their behavior. It is about our perception. Managing diversity is also about seeing each person as unique. The internet connection was unstable at times. Please accept my apologies for that. But let's now hear a story as a woman living abroad. Hello Bettina. Hello. I'll let you briefly introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your story. So the floor is yours, Bettina.
1: Thank you. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure and honor to, to be able to speak to you about uh, my international travels. Uh, I'm originally Polish. That's where I was born and raised and spent the first 20 years of my life. And um, when I was about 21, 22, I uh, uh, through a lot of uh, different circumstances, coincidences, luck, and so on and so forth. I, I moved to the Netherlands, where I spent uh, about 19 years. And uh, about 11 years ago, I relocated to Sydney, uh, Australia, where I'm currently. How oh, did
0: you come across interculturality? This is an important topic in your life. You're teaching cultures to your students and does living and working abroad automatically lead to intercultural awareness?
1: Uh, that's, a, that's a great question, and there is an interesting so, story in many ways. Uh, um, back when I you know, study still in uh, in Poland, I was a part of an international association. It was called Asia uh, European Students Forum, and it was a very international European organization. So we had members from uh, all over the continent. And we didn't know much about intercultural communication back then. Um, in fact, you know, born and raised in a relatively monocultural place. I, when I thought about culture, I thought art and, and uh, you know, different uh, artifacts as opposed to values or communication. And it was through the work in the association when we you know I realized that there is something going on. There were some patterns of behavior and differences between us. So it was really, I kind of stumbled across um, this topic by experiencing it and and realizing that hmm, I would like to understand more about how come we differ so much. So so that's how it kind of started. Whether directly you become competent by being um, exposed to diversity, I, I don't think so. I think quite likely you might actually go the other direction. You might form more negative stereotypes if if what you see, if the differences you see or experience are are not, you know, uh, matching the expectations you have. So I don't think there is a direct relationship. I think for me, it was more the curiosity of wanting to understand how come we differ so much, even though we are all committed to European integration, we all work towards the same goal, we are the same age and we are all students. Still- very interesting. And and
0: then you started to study about this topic. Did you meet anyone who triggered this curiosity?
1: Um, the study started also quite accidentally. Um, my former supervisor uh, basically introduced this topic into my curriculum. I didn't choose it. He chose it for me. <laughs> I didn't was going to be until I started reading about it and realized my goodness this is so relevant and and back then um, again I was maybe 21 I started training about it to other students in our association so I realized this is so insightful and we have we hold so many stereotypes working together but we don't have to we can actually understand each other by understanding where those differences come from and you know with that experience I realized I want to know more so back then wasn't really much happening in poland so that's why i, I started to work on on a phd in cross cultural management in the netherlands
0: and then um, oh did you experience living and working in in rotterdam How did you first perceive the dutch people in the way they live the way they think or work from your polish eye do you remember
1: <laughs> yes yes i think the i think the most striking difference uh, back then was the, the directness Uh, Dutch people tend to be very direct, and and I think that's something that, uh, uh, as a Polish person, I found quite uh, uh, confronting. At the same time, because I had many student friends already because of the work in the association, I had a very strong network of friends who helped me to, you know, move to Rotterdam and who... Um, I kind of immediately had a very strong network and, and a kind of student family um, when I moved to Rotterdam, which helps a lot. I think you know, moving when you're a student and, and surrounded by friends makes the relocation much easier.
0: Definitely.
1: I've been learning a lot about uh, the, the Dutch directness. I, I learned a lot not to take it personal. Um, <laughs> I started study Dutch as well. And and I think I quickly started to appreciate especially the Dutch sense of humor, which again tend to be very direct. Mm. When when you said
0: that there are you perceive them as very direct, but how did they perceive you? Do you have any idea?
1: I think the difference between Poland and the Netherlands uh, back then is that again, Poland was a very monocultural country. So we weren't exposed much to diversity. I think for for Dutch people. Especially Rotterdam, it's one of the most multicultural cities in the world. So I think for them, I was just in terms of the behaviors, um, I was blending in with a whole range of other, um, you know, other groups. I guess that the difference for me being Polish is that whether we want or not, there are certain um, kind of social, political, and, and historical nuances that color our perception of people coming from different parts of the world and and i'm not that i always had a bit of a perception that coming from you know the eastern part of europe i wasn't necessarily immediately treated as equal i needed to to show that i can be competent and that was i think a little bit difficult about living in back in in the netherlands
0: Mm, i understand did your possible assumptions about the Dutch and other cultures evolve with your cross-cultural learning and teaching?
1: I think we never stop learning when it comes to you know culture and diversity. So, so I feel like I learn every single day with every new interaction I have with people who are different than myself. So the other big part about cultural learning is that it's, it's one thing to know cognitively about something and it's very different to then um control your emotions about something that might be different and and something you might not like even though you know it's culturally based. So I think it's an ongoing process. And I always tell my students when I when I teach them that just because I teach you that doesn't mean I am an expert and I and I never have you know some stereotypes kicking in. We all do. It's about the awareness of that and the and the fact that we consciously make an effort to overcome those stereotypes and see people um, with a with a um, you know good heart, if, you, if, if I can say it this way, and and then the possibility that, that they can be whoever they want to be, without those those biases that each and every one always has.
0: And um, were there particular cultural dimensions at stakes or challenging for your adjustments in this new cultural background?
1: when you're looking back. I think the, the the directness was one of those issues which, you know, for example, if you talk to a friend and you ask them to help you with something, in Poland, if a friend couldn't help you, they would at least give you the, the very, very committed feeling that they really, really want to help you if they only could. Uh, While well, <laughs> in the Netherlands, you might just hear a short, no, sorry, but uh, I'm busy. And that was very confronting because you immediately think, oh my goodness, uh, they don't care about me. Uh, mm. because in Poland, the fact that people would create those beautiful flowery responses if they can't do something for you and if you didn't directly, no, I can't because I have other treatment, of course meant that I would question a lot, uh, whether I'm actually liked, whether I'm actually part of the in-group and so on and so forth. So I think that was really difficult to realize that those direct responses didn't mean that someone doesn't like me. They were just, you know, very clear black and white factual responses. Mm. Do you mean
0: that in Poland they could avoid saying no to avoid losing face in front of the interlocutor?
1: Possibly, but I think it's more around the fact that if someone asks you to do something and it's, you know, someone you care about, you will not just directly say, uh, no, because I'm doing something else. You might say initially about how much you would love to help them and how much you wish you didn't have other commitments. So you kind of create that, that that message in which you really, first of all, and foremost, you're trying to tell your friend how much you care about them. And you you did not have that other commitment that you unfortunately have. So it's a different way of saying the same message where that care about the other um, and that relationship is really critical to saying no.
0: Mm, I understand.
1: And what
0: now with that experience and that possibility to, to compare to some extent and put things into perspective, what's your preferred way of communicating, being more direct or indirect? Did you change your way of communicating because you lived? And experience things in 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 the Netherlands.
1: That's a very good question, and and I think I probably partially did. I definitely acquired a very uh, specific sense of humor, which can be extremely direct. And I and I regret I can't apply it in, in Australia because the context uh, doesn't really take well those those direct jokes. Um, so certainly I acquired that bit. I think in terms of directness, I definitely am not as direct as as uh, the dutch but i certainly got more direct than i used to be so i think you know as we move we we kind of evolve and and unless you move as a you know young child you you never really lose that cultural background that you've been socialized into you you transform it and i certainly did transform um and I'm, and i'm probably you know don't fully match and don't fully fit into any of those um, environments anymore <laughs> I think another interesting learning that I have that you you make home and and you, you know, learn how to live in any place where, you know, people that you love are. And and my attitude about, you know, moving uh, across the the world is just make sure you you surround yourself with people that you can call friends and, and you evolve with them by trying to be upfront about how you work, how you think, how you communicate. And things can change
0: and you make friends, at different friends in different parts of the world and you evolve it then and you become some sort of hybrid person.
1: Yes, definitely. I, I think, you know, everyone, anyone who has traveled uh, internationally has, and spent, you know, an extended period of time in another country, whether they want it or not, whether they are aware of it or not, they are a hybrid person. And, you know, big part of my initial uh, research was linked to repatriation. The fact that some of those transformations that we undergo while we go abroad, we are not aware of. So when we return back, we are taken by surprise that the relationships and the communication with our home country friends is different because we we don't see that transformation in ourselves quite often. But it becomes very much you know, obvious when, of course, we move back and, and and people see us differently because we are different
0: we are different and and it confronts us to our original background when we come back and sometimes it's harder to come back <laughs> than to move exactly. to move abroad
1: <laughs> it's <was>,
0: definitely <laughs> and then you made the decision to move to australia uh, well what brought you to that decision when things were quite going well and smoothly for you in rotterdam weren't they yes they were
1: they were going very smoothly Um, I am not going to lie that that some of the motivation was uh, um, very much linked to external factors. Uh, I was was offered a a great position at the University of Sydney. And um, I remember back then sitting in Rotterdam and I was sitting in my office and looking outside and it was raining and it rains a lot in Rotterdam. And I thought to myself, every day it rains, I'm going to be thinking, oh, I could have been in Sydney. So I told myself, I need to try it. And if I regret it, then I can always come back. But if I don't try it, then I might forever regret. So it was one of the the very kind of uh, uh, superficial, almost reasons, uh, wanting to give it a try, uh, wanting to experience, you know, new environment and knowing that um, I'm probably privileged enough and lucky enough in my life that if things went wrong, I could always return.
0: Mm, Sure, sure. We can always make a turn in our lives, I mean, and and re-question our our decisions, for sure. And how did living and working in Sydney change your life? You know, each move to a new country is a new adventure. (laughs) That implies, well, uncertainties, but also opportunities. In your case, what counted
1: in your balance of
0: giveaway and take?
1: Um, I think what was interesting about coming to Australia is that people quite often don't know much about Poland. So in some way I could be whoever I wanted to be. It was a very kind of, uh, interesting, refreshing start, uh, of again, being in some way an an exotic Polish person. Um, what was also interesting was the, the greater focus on work-life balance that, that Australia has. And, and, um, the kind of openness to, to, to diversity and, and the, you know, extremely diverse, uh, um, people in terms of workplaces or anywhere else. Rotterdam had the same, but I think for some reason, um, at least within my my own uh, uh, environment, I think there were many, many more Dutch people. While in my current working uh, uh, environment, I was actually reflecting upon it the other day, and I thought, hmm, I think the only person with an Australian background has left us, so I don't really have someone who is Australian-Australian, if you know what I mean because all of us are somewhere else in the world. So again I I it, it wasn't it was a decision that while well, in some way challenging because Australia is uh on literally on the other side of the world um at the same I never I never regretted uh, uh
0: the move. You talked about exotic. What your Polish origins made you exotic?
1: I think if you don't know um you know much about a given country then Um, there is much more of this kind of very um, raw interest that that means that you can say anything and everything and be whoever you want. And most, um, back in Europe, as you probably would know, everyone would recognize my accent as being Eastern European. They might not, you know, exactly say Polish, but they would know Eastern European that comes, you know, with certain um, historical assumptions and so on and so forth. Well, here... The amount of time that people ask me if I speak French, you know, it would just something that in Europe everyone would laugh, thinking, "How could they ever assume I speak French?" And and in that way, I can be, as I'm saying, in in the eyes of, of many people around here, I can claim to be whoever I want. And because they don't know much much about Poland, they are kind of keen to learn a little bit more about where Poland is and and what my you know life looked like. And and again, it's it, it's a very interesting start where there is no historical baggage in some way that people consider when they see you. Um, If you had to
0: compare the way they
1: communicate
0: in Australia, at least what you experience in Sydney, because Australia is a huge country, uh, almost a continent in itself, and if you had to compare the way Dutch communicate, what,
1: what would you say? The nice, that's the nice thing about intercultural communication that it's all relative it, it depends on you know what your reference point is and sure. while you know many of my um, you know Chinese students or colleagues would say that the Australians are very direct I actually find them you know returning from or moving from the Netherlands I find them extremely in some way indirect and, and cultic avoidant so so i interesting that the perception changes depending of what your reference point is. So, so I think that would be one of the biggest, when I, when I work with expatriates, that's, you know, one of the biggest um, warnings that I give them that it might seem and you might have heard that Australians are very direct, but actually they aren't that direct. Uh, for most Europeans, um, Australia would seem to be relatively conflict avoidant and therefore those difficult topics are not discussed lightly. And like every language, it, you know, there are pl- a lot of nuances in how, you know, bad news might be delivered or critical feedback might be delivered. So I kind of, you know, help the clients, the expatriates I work with to navigate this superficial assumption of uh, directness that actually hides underneath a lot of conflict avoidance and therefore a lot of indirectness.
0: So there is a nuance to be made between individual communication, well face-to-face communication and communication, collective communication in the country?
1: I think, you know, when it comes to kind of individual, I think, again, because Australia is such a is such a diverse place, you never know if the person you are talking to is actually, you know, has been born and raised in Australia and whether p- the parents of that person have been born and raised in Australia. So um, I think, you know, the statistics uh, are very clear that the, number of first and second generation migrants is huge in the country. So, so there are a lot of assumptions that you that you won't see. But I think in terms of corporate culture in the workplace, I think you know, there is a lot about this kind of um, friendly and smiley attitude and, and, the, and the need for harmony. I think that's, that's something that's very important in Australia.
0: Need for harmony, not always in the control side of things. There is a mixture, no. probably, of both.
1: Yeah, in, in a sense, I'm saying of, of people. Like, people like come to work and smile. They like to find the assumption is that things should be nice and and friendly and easy. And that means that conflict, of course, direct conflict, could interrupt that uh, harmony. So I think you know that there is some some assumptions and stereotypes of laid back Australians. I wouldn't really say that there is that much about laid back, but I think there is the idea of we should be living, you know, in a smiley, happy uh, environment.
0: And what was your perception, if you remember well, of Australia before you moved, and and after a few years in the country, as it as it evolved?
1: I think when I moved initially, what really was again very very lovely was the 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 kind of openness and, and and the welcoming um, attitude um, that I experienced. I think, and I don't think it might be um, specific to Australia only, I think it's something that many expatriates will experience in other parts of the world as well. Uh, But there is this idea of, of, yes, on one hand, I'm very open and welcoming, but it's much more difficult to enter the, the inner circle And if you move, you know, in your 30s or 40s, where people already have very strong established social relationships and you are the newcomer. I think in Australia still, it's quite a struggle to actually enter that inner circle. And and even though you would think on the surface that it should be super easy because everyone is so extremely open, friendly and supportive. But again, I don't think it's unique to Australia. Only there will be other parts of the world which, um, which will be quite similar. And climate, does it
0: impact the way they socialize?
1: I think it does impact the fact that um, there was a relatively stronger, I think, understanding of the need for work-life balance. And I think I'm, my perception is, um, and again, you know, this is just my individual view, that for example, weekends or days off are, are treated more seriously as days where work should not happen. So while, you know, um, people can work really long hours, I think when they take time off, they really take time off. And, and again, if you live, you know, in a place where uh, it's, you know, beautiful and green almost anywhere you look, of course you want to enjoy that. So so I think this is the, the advantage of living in Australia, that people, because they are surrounded with such absolutely gorgeous uh, surroundings, uh, want to enjoy it, and that means they respect others who want to enjoy it if it's time off.
0: Sure, I understand. So now, what kind of prejudices can be hard, you think, to undergo when living abroad?
1: Um, I think when it comes to prejudices, again, it's all about context and history. So depending which part of the world you find yourself, there will be different assumptions that people are going to have uh, about your particular origin. And I think, um, again, as a Polish person, it was very easy for me to move to Australia and much more difficult to, to move to the Netherlands. Um, and I think you know, Australia has its own uh, issues and prejudices around certain groups, which might not be that obvious or that prevalent in a, in, in back in the Netherlands. So, so I think it's really the awareness of there will be always some groups that we perceive in some way as inferior to ourselves, and the big message I have when I work with students is that even if you are not a victim of a of a prejudice of a prejudice in a given country, there will be someone around you that will be, and it's your responsibility to help them. And it's your responsibility to create an environment that will be inclusive and that will help overcoming those prejudices. So. Um, I think this is the kind of uh, message I'm trying to to pass that every every single part of the world has some prejudices ag- against people coming from different uh, cultures or, or different backgrounds.
0: Sure, De- definitely. Uh, if you had first moved to Sydney to Australia before moving to Rotterdam, would that have changed anything in your adjustment? Would it be be easier?
1: Hmm. That's an interesting question. Oh, oh I don't know. I think um, uh, possibly I wouldn't have acquired this specific sense of humor, which I miss now <laughs> uh, and I practice in this country. Um, but, and possibly I wouldn't have appreciated that much um the, the kind of um, openness towards Polish people, which I appreciate now. So I think there wouldn't be you no know, differences, Uh, At the same time, uh, you know, my life and and my work in the Netherlands, of course, taught me a lot and, and prepared me a lot to do any other future transition. But that first move is always a big one. And it's always going to help, I believe, with the consecutive moves, because you are much more prepared, your expectations are adjusted, that things might be challenging. And we know, of course, that the big part of the relocation stress is because people quite often don't expect relocation to be challenging. So I think, yes, definitely my relocation, if it hadn't, you know, if it was not through the Netherlands, my relocation to Sydney, I'm sure it would have been different. But I know that every transition I have done in my life has had its role and its place and, and was a valuable lesson in in many ways. What common challenges?
0: do you think your students face in their adjustment in, in Australia?
1: Uh, this is a very, uh, you know, tough context for many of them. I think, again, when when they move to here and their English might not be fluent and they lack confidence, quite often it's not even the English as it is their own perception of their English fluency. Um, they, they tend to isolate themselves and they fear that, um they will not be taken seriously, or that you know they nobody would like to hang out with them. So I feel that it's very important to to push yourself to go out there and and be proactive in in how you approach this process. And I think many of my students, when you move to a country where English is the native language and everyone around you or so many people speak you know um, uh, English as a first language, it can be very intimidating to. To try to get that confidence, and and the more, of course, you isolate yourself, the fewer opportunities you have to practice the language, and the and the fewer opportunities you have to practice communication um, patterns, and 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 learn how to, you know, fit in in the new environment. So, so I think this is one of the big challenges that people moving to to countries when English is the the native uh, language experience. And again, it's a lot about their own self perception. Of the fluency and not necessarily the the factual lack of ability to communicate.
0: Mm, probably there are activities or workshops organised to host newcomers in your university.
1: There are, but most of it is, you know, relatively short-lived, and and students then, of course, do what you can imagine. You know, many expatriates do as well. So they go into their little ethnic. And clubs, they they start hanging out people from the same country, which just, as I'm saying, reinforces the, the vicious circle in which they don't get exposure, they don't get to practice the language and they and they struggle to integrate. So, so yes, I think, you know, expats do the same. They quite, we often hear about the expat bubbles. And that's a risk. Yeah. And I really, you know, knowing and talking to expatriates and students, I know that Quite often it's not the fluency, but it's their own perception and the lack of confidence around language fluency.
0: I'd like now to move to another topic and discussing um, place of women in in, in societies and how has your cross-cultural experience shaped your vision of the roles women can or could take now and in the future to have a bigger impact in the society?
1: Oh, that's a very big big topic. In that regard I had a quite an interesting uh, you know upbringing because my mom was working uh, you know full time, seven days a week, three shifts um, and when my parents uh, you know parted ways, I was living with my mom and then basically you know when she went to to work during the night shift I would be home by myself. And for me, I never felt neglected by my mom. I never felt like she didn't spend enough time with me. I knew she was a hardworking woman who was, you know, earning living for for the two of us. So that's how I was brought up back in Poland. And I think the economic situation back in Poland meant that many women had to work because one salary was insufficient to, you know, maintain and sustain a household. Now, moving to the Netherlands, which I thought back then was all about emancipation, I remember the the kind of confronting first interaction when I realized that, yes, women fight for, you know, equality, but as soon as they become moms, that's where it finishes. So a a mom, when a mom decides to be a mom, she needs to spend most of the time with the child. A dad, not. That is okay if the dad is working, you know, seven days a week. But a mom, clearly not a good mom if she decides to work. And that was for me very confronting again, coming from a household household where I never ever for a second thought that I was neglected or that my mom wasn't a good mom because she was working. And, and I think this is something that back in the Netherlands, with all the you know huge waves of feminism and all the conversation about equality was, was really a huge surprise. And and now in the in Australia, I, I find it similarly confronting. I I think that we talk a lot about gender equality. But in fact, we are really far from that. And and I strongly believe that um, the, the, the social pressure around, you know, gender roles is really high. And I believe that any, you know, family should make that judgment code of what's best for them. But the judgment code should be based really in, in individual preferences as opposed to, you know, societal pressure. So, yeah, I it, you know how the exposure in some way changed my view. It, it made me even more um, strongly convinced that that I need to make all these young women I get to meet in my in my throughout my career make them aware that if they choose to have careers while having children, there is nothing wrong about it, and they are not bad moms, and and that they have partners who can equally support them and share share those parenting responsibilities if they choose to do so. So again, I'm not saying that every woman should go to work. I just feel like there shouldn't be having that societal pressure of being a bad, a bad mom if they decide to still maintain their careers. So it's a very complex and difficult topic, but um, I always was very independent and I value my independence. Uh, and we all know in relationship, things can go per shape. And to know that as a woman, you can sustain yourself and your child, and so on and so forth. I think it's also a big part of responsible parenting. So yes, did my perception change? I think so because I took for granted it was normal that men and women work, and I realized that in you know many parts of the world that's not that normal, and that there is a huge burden women who decide to have children, and work, a huge burden they have to face. And let's be honest, while we can't be, but we can be. Called a you know lousy employee, none of us wants to be called a lousy mom, and that's you know the worst label you can imagine. So so the the the, the societal pressure is huge, and it's really unfair. Again, it's really unfair.
0: Mm. And you are quite very very busy, so it's important that they don't feel guilty with working. Absolutely. And in the, yes, it's. I think the guilt they carry on them of not being a good mom if they work a full-time job is, is sometimes quite hard to, to carry. Don't you think?
1: Yes, and I'm saying, but but societal norms around um, working and parenting mean that, that the perceptions differ and the guilt might not be that strong. I'm sure that every working mom has some level of guilt. The question is how big that you know level of guilt is and also how much, in some way, almost direct confrontation those working moms can experience. And equally, you know, non-working moms. I don't want, you know, non-working moms to feel guilty for not working. But I just feel like there should be way more, in some way, emotional freedom that, that people are not uh, pushed into one or the other direction because of guilt. So when, when they live in
0: a country that is quite open for, for gender equality, it's important to empower them. And when they come back to their own country, if the country uh, puts some pressure on you taking care and looking after the children and stopping working or taking part-time work instead of uh, taking a full-time job, sometimes it can be hard for them to readjust and they may feel quite unstable and making a step back.
1: (laughs) It's a very complex problem.
0: And you're very busy and very active woman. And did you find a nice split of roles in the old and in the upbringing of children with, with your husband, Mayor Hasta?
1: That's another tricky question. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Uh, I I don't think I necessarily fully did because again, probably of the direct communication I have learned, I I found a way to talk about what I need and what type of parenting arrangement I am imagining. And and I think that's already a very important step that that I took. Whether we are fully equal in how we parent, mm, I'm afraid not. Uh, I think you know, uh, when I look around, there are very few families uh, that could say that they are. but I certainly found you know way to talk about those moments when when we are getting really out of balance. And um again, probably as a working mom, I have enough guilt that I want to be a lot of a lot of time with my children when I'm not working. so so that probably elevates some of the challenges. Um, but look, I think um it's really about being, able to even have those difficult conversations within within your household. What my expectations are, how I struggle, how I need you to to help me, or what other creative solutions we can find. Mm. I, I think your
0: husband is Australian, isn't he? Yes. Yeah, yes and he is. <laughs> do you think that your different cultural backgrounds helped you to bridge cultural differences more easily in Australia?
1: I think that as i'm saying it's kind of interesting because it's it's interesting in a way that i never considered his background to be in some way exceptionally challenging his you know cultural profile so you know every individual is different so in that regard i i never really saw cultural differences playing out a role in our relationship so so i think again uh probably because I've been working for so many years of my life with, you know, people from such many different cultural backgrounds. I I never considered him. It's actually your question that me, that makes me consider him for the first time ever as an Australian person that never, that thought never occurred in my mind. So it could be also because the way I normally teach diversity is that you treat everyone, you know, as a unique individual. So maybe that's why in, in, in my head when i met him he never was a, an australian man he was just an he was just a person and and some of the knowledge of of australia implicitly might have helped me but i tried to give uh, knowing what we know about cultural diversity and and that no single individual ever fits a stereotype or even the kind of research and matrix of what cultural diversity looks like in that <laughs> context i sure. think that means that i approach every individual as a as a unique human being. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, with that, you know, knowledge of there could be different interpretations of different situations. And you never know whether the person that you meet is a typical, uh, you know. Yes, sure. <laughs> Polish or exactly an atypical one. What you know is that you you have now the knowledge to experience different behaviors. And if those behaviors that come is something that is unexpected or something you don't like, you have now Through that knowledge, I have much more of a many more explanations of certain behaviors, as opposed to you know angry response about I don't like what you are doing and that's silly. So I think that's where that knowledge helps me. But you know, it's interesting. I never thought of him, of you know, as being Australian. I hope my question
0: did not make you uncomfortable. At least.
1: No, <laughs> it's very interesting. But again, I never, I never, did. but I think it's also, you know, why it could be possible because again, Australia is so extremely diverse and people from so many different parts of the world that every time I'm asked to deliver training on Australia, it's extremely challenging to follow the predefined slides I received. Because again, what does it mean to be Australian if everyone is so diverse? And, and is there anything really typical? So, yeah, so I think that's the important disclaimer that we should have that, that you never know. And it's just good to know that those behaviors that are different and that we might not like are, do not necessarily mean that someone is a bad person. It's just that they have a different perspective.
0: Feeling Australian or feeling whatever nationality, it means that you, you feel that you blend into the cultural environment you feel comfortable you feel good in, in in the society and maybe this is at and you feel quite integrated at one at one point but it takes time and it's it's a constant progressing into a society into into a different cultural background yeah absolutely and step by step evolution and so what important life lessons? Have you learned so far from living abroad?
1: Um, I think that home can be everywhere. That home is not necessarily a place where you were born, but a place where you have a circle of of people who are close to your heart and and who create that feeling of belonging to some group. and And I think that you know, life is a kind of ever ongoing journey of learning and there is always going to be surprises and uh, um, it takes effort to, to make it you know, a, a successful process. Uh, I think I've seen many people kind of alienated and struggling and, and getting really depressed and it's very easy to, to fall in that, especially when you, you know, move somewhere where you might not speak fluently the language and it's so difficult to build those social connections. It takes a lot of takes a lot of productivity and and going out there and trying over and over again to meet new people and and not getting discour, discouraged if if something doesn't work but just give it another go. Yes, sure. <laughs>
0: it's, it's very good life lessons. You know, we are nearing the the end of, of our interview. And I like to ask this question to all women I interview. What advice would you like to share with other young women while considering to work and live abroad? What would you tell them?
1: Um, that they should give it a go, first of all. And that while they are giving it a go, that they should expect that it might be more difficult than they think. And that regardless of what expert you are and how many books you read about cultural diversity, which is important and can be very helpful, anyone can experience challenges. And I think rather than blaming themselves or, or thinking something is wrong with them, um, instead realize that move, moving abroad can be a challenge even for expert in expatriation and diversity. And, and that having that Positive outlook is really critical.
0: So that's in the way they, they get prepared before before moving. It's important. And even
1: when they are there, as I'm saying, yes, even yes, when
0: experience
1: challenges um, on the ground. And I, you know, I had a I had a training with a wonderful young um expatriate um, last week. And she was talking about how difficult it is to just meet a friend that she could go uh, and have a coffee with. You know, that's exactly the challenges that are so unexpected to build meaningful connections with at least one person.
0: Yes. Yes, it's sure that someone with a shyer, that's much more complicated. It's more challenging for that kind of person than for a naturally outgoing person. So Bettina, thank you very much for sharing your experience. It was really fascinating and very insightful, I think, for all of us. I wish you a good life and very beautiful projects for you and your family in
1: the future. Thank you. And again, uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. And then I really hope that in some way, the podcast that you are um, running will be supportive for all these women who are trying to change their lives and and make that very courageous step. And and I think it's wonderful that you create those opportunities uh, for people to learn a little bit more about what relocation could look like before people make that move. Sure, I, I I do.
0: This is my real hope too. And I'm sure you contributed to this. Thank you very much again, Bettina. Thank you for following us in this episode. Because an international experience can awaken incentives and reveal new aspects in women's identities, Women Abroad is the podcast that appeals to young women everywhere. Did you like this episode? Like it? And subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcast, and share it with your friends. You can also rate us and review us. Would you like to share your experience abroad? Whether you are a student, an early career woman or a more experienced professional, contact me on my page women underscore on Instagram and women abroad on Facebook. You can also listen to the episodes on my website, women abroad coachingcom I wish you a great day and a bright life. Talk to you soon.